Hi there, I'm Virginie. And I'm Jess. And we're here to welcome you to episode 5 of Spark Minds, the podcast about creativity. Today, we're going to talk about how creativity is perceived differently across different cultures. And more specifically, given you know my mixed background, I'm half French, half Thai, I really wanted to, to kind of deconstruct a bit more this fallacy. The fallacy that the East isn't as radically creative as the West. Um, it's something that I've heard, you know, in, in various different forms and various different ways, you know, what's considered really legitimate, high, you know, worthwhile art or creativity, what only gets legitimacy once it's presented through a Western lens. And, and I wanted to, to deconstruct that a bit, especially given the global context and how COVID-19 seems to have brought out a healthy sense of xenophobia on all sides. So... You know, just a few disclaimers before going into this episode. Um, we're mostly examining this from a Far East and Western binary, because both of us at some point or another had a foot in both of these worlds. So we can talk this with some level of nuance and understanding. Um, and I'm using the terms East and West, not because I particularly like those terms, but because they're the words we have, basically. And, you know, and there's a reason why that concept exists. And actually part of what we're trying to do here today is deconstruct a little bit, you know, that perception. And it goes without saying that neither the East nor the West is homogenous or a monolith. So we'll be using specific examples that we're familiar with, but definitely not to say that it's completely homogenous. So, yeah. For, for this topic. <laughs> I'm, I grew up in Thailand, so I was born in Bangkok. I lived in Th- Thailand until I was 18, but I went to a Western school. Um, and I've been living in London for the last 12 years. I don't know, Jess, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? Um, yeah, I guess, yeah, pertaining to this subject, um, I studied at SOAS, uh, which is the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, for anybody who's who's not familiar with it. Um, which is where I studied Chinese and Korean. So I've yeah, studied in South Korea. I lived in China for a few years and worked there. And it's kind of where I'm drawing on. And, you know, speaking of SOAS, obviously, <laughs> one of SOAS's <laughs> biggest heroes, I guess, Edward Said. Um... <laughs> <laughs> uh, fulfilling my destiny as a SOAS student to work in Edward Said into every aspect of my life it was bound (laughs) to happen at some point (laughs) so as a quick introduction to the like I guess the concept right because I I said that I'm not that big a fan of this this idea of the east as a monolith or the west Mm -hmm. as a monolith it's obviously not but when I say it people kind of understand what we mean so how did this concept evolve Mm -hmm. um and it's existed since antiquity basically you know the west had to position what it saw as the other um, in a different light, you know, the people that they came in contact with through trade or through war. And and some of the ways they did that is, according to Edward Said's book, Orientalism, you know, a little bit the idea of positioning them in opposition to the West, right? So the West is rational, logical, mm-hmm. um, innovative. The East is <laughs> irrational, you know, pleasant, but strange. And <laughs> Yeah, kind of characterized in this very, like, overly romanticized sense or kind of like uh an idea of of the exotic 
in in kind of like opposition to this very kind of and i think you know even thinking edward said was writing it specifically in the context of the middle east um but when we were talking earlier about how how this this kind of dichotomy positions the west in opposition to the east specifically as you know the west rational um mm-hmm. psychologically strong um makes sense innovative um the east as kind of romantic mm-hmm. but a bit what was the word like chaotic and mm-hmm. and and irrational um and i've definitely heard someone describe thailand in kind of similar terms so it's so <laughs> interesting that it's just this this concept clearly exists and clearly has meaning because people do refer to it in in those terms whether or not it's really based on truth mm-hmm. very strict idea of the west being the place where logic and innovation happens and i guess that kind of um leads us to uh, the the modern day kind of characterization of superpowers mm. you know as an arena of the US versus China for instance yeah so the US is a you know the the established kind of global superpower and when we think of China and a lot of countries in Asia as emerging superpowers a lot of what i seem to hear come out a lot is a little bit this anxiety almost mm-hmm. around you know the these countries becoming more powerful and one of the ways that i seem to hear the west assuage themselves as this anxiety is to say don't worry about it like in the west we're we're creative we're innovators we're designers we are where basically the high skill jobs are mm-hmm. and and the east is is creating their economic power basically through low skilled labor you know and and in the west we have critical thinking and in the east it's all rote learning and and i guess my my aim with this podcast is to maybe challenge that idea a little bit yeah and and it's anytime i i hear that kind of like comparison is it comes across as a little bit strange doesn't it because it's it's almost as if like the the implicit thing being said is that creativity is like a, a trait that is innate to a specific area or mm. like specific parts of the world, whereas well, parts, parts of the world rather. Um, whereas I think you know we have to take into kind of like people's perception and depending on like the history of a place or what you know what people have available in terms of resources and what gets recognised and so on. I think the what gets recognised is quite important because mm-hmm. kind of back to that idea is like the East as um, back to that idea of like the West as. As, as rational the west as enlightened the west mm-hmm. as innovators and we think of like if you were to think of almost any like short history of the world mm-hmm. right you will always get a reference to the renaissance you'll always get a reference to the enlightenment mm-hmm. would you get a reference to the fact that a lot of inventions came from the east you know paper gunpowder from china mm-hmm. and then it was mathematicians in India that actually discovered the Fibonacci sequence. But we call it the Fibonacci sequence after the Italian man who introduced it to Europe. <laughs> yeah. um, and for me, that kind of brings it on to the world has always been a global place. Mm-hmm. Um, but how are these cultural exchanges legitimized? Mm-hmm. And because of the history history of the last 500 years with imperialism and colonialism mm-hmm. it seems like a lot of cultural exchange is legitimized once someone from the west has put their stamp of approval on it basically right yeah and then um sometimes in terms of like recognition of innovation 
Mm. It's, uh, I guess, you're kind of touching upon the, like, the pre- like previously mentioned kind of superpower perspective. Mm. It's kind of seen as an emerging threat sometimes, and it kind of, you, know, you might see this a little bit in the expression of like what the idea of a kind of like neo noir dystopian, uh, high tech dystopian future you see in cyberpunk to be drawing on an anxiety of like being japan as kind of like the innovator in the 80s and you know generally speaking you'd think oh well you know innovation is supposed to be good right you think you know progress and intelligence and blah 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 but when sometimes you know the way people see it if, if it's coming from somewhere that's uh you know seen to be foreign or unfamiliar sometimes not seen as kind of like a and you know an exciting thing to mm. welcome in but more as a threat yeah definitely or you know so either seen as as a threat or or just seen as as not as legitimate or not as mm-hmm. interesting in mm-hmm. some ways um and only of interest when when someone from the west takes interest in it mm-hmm. and i was thinking about this this morning because i was listening to a podcast about um the history of fashion mm-hmm. and um it was actually really interesting because it was a podcast about queen Sirikit, who is the the queen queen mother now of thailand mm-hmm. And back when her and her husband were like a young couple um, in the 50s and 60s, you know, I, I think of so many kind of East Asian countries who I can think of that that have done this, which is to to take elements of the West to kind of mm-hmm. legitimize themselves in the eyes of the West. Right. Mm-hmm. So Queen Circuit wanted to promote Thai culture, wanted to promote Thai fashion and Thai textiles. But she also knew that there was a certain expectation of how she had to look with regards to the the eyes of the world and with regards mm-hmm. to, you know, foreign dignitaries. So her couturier was Pavel Mon, a French designer, which is just interesting, right? Because it's it's Thai textiles, it's mm-hmm. Thai traditional dress, but it's Pierre Valmont who's designing it. Yeah, it's um interesting in terms of yeah, trying to then, is that like adding legitimacy? Did, did people know that? the couturier was French or? Yeah, because Belmont was quite, you know, I mean, Belmont is still a a famous name in fashion Mm -hmm. now. And at the time was a felt famous name in fashion as well. And, you know, I do think Mm -hmm. it wasn't just about that. I think Queen Circuit also had a a personal relationship. I think he was introduced to her Mm -hmm. and she liked his style and, you know, but there was a conscious decision there to, to invite a Western influence into traditional Thai dress to mm-hmm. to legitimize it in the eyes of the west as well and to to make it more in- interesting and but also to sell it you know to make people yeah. interested in thai craftsmanship but like, i guess in terms of also like adding adding legitimacy i guess it's it's kind of trying to handle people's expectations as well mm-hmm. right because then even when you know, we con- when countries are in charge of kind of like cultivating you know soft power and how um they represent different aspects of of culture to other countries you know, sometimes there's a conscious decision to rebrand things that, you know, once were kind of like, you know, something the average person would eat or drink or use or, you know, something like that. And then it's rebranded into something that is fashion or gourmet or something like that. Um, just as an example, uh, Chinese rice wine. It's, you know, for me, like when I picture it, it's, it's one of those things that's kind of, you see it everywhere. In the supermarket, you have the entire range of like finding it too quiet in a plastic bag or you know (laughs) I love drinks in a plastic bag I remember sharing this with my first 
English boyfriend and he was like there's no way you drink things in plastic bags and I was like we do though <laughs> it's a real thing <laughs> it's efficient and it's easy to to transport like what, what's not, not great for the environment but you know <laughs> yeah yeah just very convenient to, to carry around but so for you know you have that all the way up to like the really expensive looking gift set <laughs> that you're supposed to present to someone as far as I'm familiar with it like what brings to mind is kind of you know in some ways you have the factory worker who's just sitting around with his friends and they're all having a drink together and it's kind of bonding right but the idea of that having this really kind of like high class version of Chinese rice wine which is I think what's being um, marketed to kind of like so-called western markets is kind of like another like top shelf liquor um seems really bizarre to me but I mean that that is a conscious choice you know to try and like uh, bring further interest into into it as a product yeah uh, and I think for me this kind of ties in with with also how how in East Asia has had to kind of market their films to a Western audience in the past right so my my feeling on this and you know let me know what you think but it's like there are there are basically three kinds of of East Asian films marketed in the West there's either like the art film that's mm-hmm. won many awards particularly like Cannes Film Festival or there's like the two genre films it's martial arts or it's horror stories and that's and like not to discredit any of those things because i love i love martial arts films i Mm -hmm. love ghost films um Mm -hmm. and i'm definitely not adverse to more artistic films but when i think of like what's actually produced and consumed for the local market Mm -hmm. it's not reflective of what's being exported to the west so if i think of like thai thai films that are very, I'm going to say in air quotes, easy to find with English subtitles mm-hmm. um, and have been marketed to the West. There's always Uncle Boonmi, who recalls his past lives, which is kind of more of an artistic film. It won the Cannes Film Festival. Mm-hmm. You know, Ongbak, which is probably one of the most famous martial arts films or Shutter. Mm-hmm. You'll sometimes see Pimak, which is interesting because like <laughs> now there's an example of a film that's actually domestically popular and it's a kind of romantic comedy horror (laughs) (laughs) and it made one billion worldwide primarily in Asia um, but it was the highest grossing film in Thailand or you know if I think of another Thai film that was very very popular it was called Fan Chan which is Mm -hmm. called My Girl and it was you know again very kind of local story about local people's lives it's like a nostalgic romantic comedy Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not saying it's completely different to what's being marketed to the West, but it's interesting what what does get marketed to the West. And, you know, there's a whole like domestic market that that has different offerings. And it's true. And it's, since we're you know, talking about uh, films, it just it would be a miss to not mention, um, you know, all the all the films that kind of get, you know, that started off as like, um, you know, offerings from. Uh, you know, East Asian countries and then get remade for American audiences. Mm. You have your, you know, The Ring or The Grudge, you know, and it kind of like kind of just gets reimagined with, you know, protagonist and, and, you know, sometimes even completely different locations and only certain aspects of the story remain. I mean, not even, I kind of don't even really break it into the mainstream. Um, so like there was, a Korean horror film called Into the Mirror, which got re- ne- like remade for American audiences in 2008 called Mirrors. <laughs> or, 
if anybody is really into their Korean like romantic comedy films, My Sassy Girl was a really <laughs> popular film. You know, the American version just tanked completely. Uh <laughs> it's funny about the ring because I think I saw the ring when I was like 13. Mm -hmm. And this was obviously in Thailand where no one checks how old you are when you go to movie theaters. <laughs> so it was me and my friends. And we were screaming the entire time. And I think everyone else in that movie theater really hated us. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of have fond memories of the American remake of The Ring. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> but yeah, like they remade Shutter, which is a really famous Thai horror film. And, and it's so funny, like the things they do to make it more to a western audience so it's like oh thailand's a bit too too foreign let's choose japan <laughs> <It's> like, okay <laughs> interesting <laughs> oh dear <laughs> actually one of the studies that i'd read researching for this podcast was thinking about how creativity is perceived and mm -hmm. that actually it's it's um us to understand another culture's creativity if that culture is quite like culturally adjacent like if they're close enough to us in culture mm -hmm. then our understandings of what is considered creativity uh, it is it's more likely to be appreciated basically and if a culture is like quite distant the understanding of what's perceived as creativity or what's appreciated in creativity might be a bit more difficult which I think kind of bears out you know with everything that we're saying about how seems to be a need for like a western stamp of approval on mm -hmm. an eastern um content whether it's fashion or or food yeah. <laughs> you know, fusion cuisine or 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 movies um there seems to be a need for for some kind of western stamp of approval historically before it, the western market um, mm -hmm. and when i think of kind of or writers or content creators from the east who have been accepted is as part of a kind of Western modern canon um, in Rushdie or Ai Weiwei, there are yeah. actually people who, who maybe grew up in the West or have had a Western education. So Salman Rushdie, he's a Booker Prize winner. He writes about South Asian topics, but he went to secondary school in Britain. His father was Cambridge educated. So there's a proximity to the West that probably makes his um, more more appealing to us and I, I say this completely without judgment because mm -hmm. being mixed myself and having been through a western education system myself I'm very conscious that my content that I create mm -hmm. also falls in this in this category mm -hmm. I mean you're you're a bit more familiar with Ai Weiwei and how he's perceived and accepted uh, yeah, just a little bit um <laughs> <laughs> I guess in terms of like when when people think of art from like China, especially in terms of modern art, uh, his name is kind of you know come up more often than not. And yeah, it's interesting to bear in mind that you know he was one of the first generation of students to study abroad after like China's uh, reforms in 1980, and you know then uh, about to travel again. Uh, he's been living in the US and Germany, and he now lives in in the UK. So um, I think it kind of yeah it changes the relationship with you know what we get to hear more often than not um in in like from other cultures in western culture so, yeah. yeah i'm obviously a product of a cultural exchange so so i'm super like i see a product of cultural exchanges and i'm i'm i've got a very positive feeling and towards cultural exchange but i do feel you know, this East-West dichotomy doesn't always 
produce the most respectful form of cultural exchange. But I do think that's changing and that there are positive examples mm -hmm. of cultural exchange happening. Um, favorite examples. I do think animation seems to be very good for this, actually. Mm -hmm. So Avatar The Last Airbender. <laughs> I was looking at the dates for you know, researching for this podcast. I can't believe it aired in 2005 to 2008. <laughs> and then we're now in 2020. I feel so old. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like it, it says so much about how good this show was mm -hmm. that in 2020, people still remember it fondly. It's still considered one of the best animated TV shows of all time. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, it's very clearly a, an American story and an American show. The characters, the way they read, the humor, it's American, but the Asian influences are used so respectfully and so, you know, new, like with such nuance and with so much love mm -hmm. that I think it's one of the best examples of like the West taking its inspiration from the East mm -hmm. and not doing it in a way to like try to legitimize what's there you know really making it its own thing um and instead of using a western expert as the voice of legitimation they actually use you know people from the east so consultants they had consultants for almost everything like consultants for calligraphy they had consultants on art direction they had consultants for chinese um history hinduism taoism buddhism yoga Chinese martial artists to really advise on how each kind of bending um, was was going to look like. So so really making it a collaboration and acknowledging the the expertise of of where they're taking inspiration from. I know it's one of the things it really shows. Um, just the general result of the the entire series. I don't know. We're both yeah. big fans. Yeah, I love. <laughs> <laughs> I do have my 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 soft toy Appa. He's he's um he takes up a lot of space on my bed, so I've had to find a new home for him. <laughs> but it is just Appa's lost days is is the, the most tragic episode. Just oh. nonstop crying. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course the the animation studios themselves. They worked a lot with South Korean animation studios, you know. So just for, at every level, the sense of collaboration and really think of kind of the, the opposite way around. Because, you know, even the fact that we're looking at this from like, okay, the West, legit, like how the West has been legitimizing their so-called discoveries of the East, mm -hmm. you know, and talking constantly from the perspective of the West. I was like, well, well what about when the East borrows? Mm -hmm. um, and the only, well, I mean, not the only example I could think of, but I'm a huge animation fan. So the example that I came up with was Studio Ghibli and the adaptation of Howl's Moving Castle, which is based on one of my favorite books by Diana Wine-Jones. Mm -hmm. um, and again, you know, like it, it really, it feels like a, you were saying it is a, a Studio Ghibli movie. Mm -hmm. It's completely, in that sense, it feels so different from the source material because he's really made it his own. Absolutely. But, um, you know, they traveled to Europe, specifically Alsace in France to study the architecture um, and, you know, both Avatar and Howl's Moving Castle are based in fantastical worlds, right? So it's like mm -hmm. kind of, you know, really working with the experts from where they're taking inspiration from. Mm -hmm. Different Asian influences, actually, in Avatar. But this kind of world um, in Howl's Moving Castle, it's a kind of European-inspired world. But, you know, it being fantastical doesn't stop him from doing the research. 
absolutely yeah that's true um and diana wine jones didn't have an input in the movie but hayao miyazaki did travel to england to show her the final version of the film which again for me speaks to respecting her as the source of inspiration you can talk about parasite so <laughs> handing it over to you jess because <laughs> you know a bit more <laughs> well it's just um interesting about uh, you know the kinds of things that that do kind of come into you know pop culture and you know the things that we're made aware of even though they're not in a language that we're familiar with so i think one big example is parasite um directed by bong joon ho uh which is you know it won best picture this year which was the first non-english language winner for that category and <laughs> as well as you know it won four oscars in total uh you know, surprising to think that it happened this year, even though it feels like 10 years ago. <laughs> oh my God, it's true. Like 2020 is the time where, where the the meaning of time just goes out the window. <laughs> but yeah, so I don't know, it's just interesting because the idea is that, you know, so many people may perceive that, you know, if something is not in English, then that is kind of consigned to art cinema, mm. you know, um, whereas, you know, I think in, in, in this particular case, there were so many strange reactions to it as well. I think some people were a little bit unhappy about um, a, a winner not being in English for mm. the picture. Um, you know, with one particular example, you know, with you know, mileage may vary um, on the source, but, you know, from HollywoodReporter.com, where they um interviewed or got some opinions from one of the Oscar voters and uh, on Parasite being in the category for best picture um, since it wasn't in English she was kind of unhappy that it was in with the in quotes regular films um, <laughs> yeah. well, what is a regular film <laughs> exactly I mean, because it's not in English I th you know I, I would be kind of disappointed if it got excluded for best picture for that reason um, <laughs> But yeah. I mean, it's it's. I think it's really great that it did win Best Picture, and like you said, it's it's a shame it took so long. But it's nice to have it recognized. Oh, definitely, and it's yeah. Again, it's, it is definitely it, it's a shame that it took so long, uh, considering that um, Bong Joon Ho has been a director for for quite a long time, and uh, you know he's uh, come out with a lot of you know interesting films that are also worth watching i mean some people are familiar with snowpiercer i've not actually seen that one myself but you know there are other ones in korean that are great such as the host or um, memories of murder i'm just trying to think of what memories of like being completely unfamiliar of it like memories of murder and the images that's coming up for me <laughs> quite interesting <laughs> Well, well um, Memories of Murder is kind of, it's set in the uh, 80s, I believe. Yeah, it's kind of a true story of, of like a series of murders kind of between like mid-80s, early 90s. And it kind of like follows the the police as they kind of try to solve the murder. But uh, I don't know. It's I th personally, I think it's very good. It's definitely worth watch. It sounds like it's up my street. I do <laughs> like a good murder film. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, another really positive sign of of kind of the the change in perception of you know creativity in the East is is actually Netflix. 
and the diffusion of a foreign language TV shows and films. And again, like kind of what you were saying, you know, the, the perception that if it's in a foreign language, it must be an art film. And it's like, no, there's like so many just romantic comedies, mm-hmm. you know, action shows, whatever. But before that was also inaccessible to a Western audience. And now through Netflix, all of it is accessible. <laughs> you know, think of K-drama it used to be such a, a niche thing. I mean, not never like it, the last... 10 years 15 years of of k-drama was definitely not a niche in asia but i think in the west it was kind of a niche it, it kind of also happened with anime as well right that mm. you know it was it was hard to find you know you had to torrent it you had to kind of wait for fan translations and things like that and uh now it's just well you know you want to see like i don't know death note it's on netflix <laughs> oh my god death note i have not thought of that manga anime or movie yeah. in a very long time <laughs> all versions of it yeah. i mean uh, that's that one also probably uh deserved a mention based on the um the kind of so-called western remake they did for the film as well i i vaguely heard of that i have to admit i did not see anything of it because I assume it was a trash fire (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean I think the Netflix diffusion of like perfectly kind of normal commercial shows domestically produced in the east is is great and I know my mom's like loving the fact that you know she's she's devoured all the (laughs) k-dramas she's moved on to like south asian dramas and turkish dramas It makes me feel like I need to kind of expand, um, you know, my uh, stable of uh, dramas on my list from K-dramas to many, many more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I got super into a, an Egyptian <laughs> telenovela kind of drama last year. So it's it's I think it's just like a really great way of just seeing normal TV shows and not assuming that, I mean, not that the assumption's there, but but having access to more than just the the kind of the art house or the very, very genre you do to broaden your horizons. Um, for me, that's three things. And just feel free to jump in with any of your thoughts. But the first <laughs> one would be watch, read or listen media from other cultures, books or films, even their version of the news or a blog. You'd be surprised at how radically that can open your eyes to a, how different events are perceived and understood differently throughout the world two would be to educate yourself on the history of how some of these concepts and associations developed over time in media and you know by whom and for what purpose and number three is just to enjoy and have fun um, discovering and being inspired by others but just remembering that the key to a respectful cultural exchange is you know minimizing and kind of like air quotations <laughs> <laughs> and collaborating with the people you're being inspired by on a on a partner basis you know on an equal basis Mm. but also really adapt like really putting your own stamp on it and making it your own thing as opposed to legitimizing something that already exists in its own form (laughs) just got nothing to add here really (laughs) okay fair enough i think you really nailed it (laughs) (laughs) for tuning in to spark Thank you for tuning in to Spark Minds. 
don't forget to subscribe to get a new episode on creativity every month. You'll find all references for the episode in the show notes and more information on how to connect with me, Virginie, at www.virginiepython.com. Today's creativity quote comes from Hayao Miyazaki. I do believe in the power of story. I believe that stories have an important role to play in the formation of human beings, that they can stimulate, amaze, and inspire their listeners.